And uh, when uh, I, I've told you this before, but when I was 15, uh, I became a Christ follower. I had never attended church, didn't grow up in the church. So the whole idea of it, people gathering together for worship was a, a really foreign concept for me. Um, when I became a Christian, I started attending a Bible study at school. And uh, some of those guys started inviting me to their churches. And um, I, just something about Going to church freaked me out. I didn't want to do it. So I avoided it for about six months. And then finally I decided one weekend I need to go to church. And there was a church down the street, small church. And so um, I went with a friend. And uh, maybe for some of you who didn't grow up in church and you can remember going to church for the first time, um, you might remember what that was like. For me, it was a little petrifying. And I had some really high expectations for the church. I was pretty sure, you know, that the pastor could probably walk on water. I was guessing he could probably change the channels, like just sitting on the couch and just think about it, kind of being a very spiritual person. I thought the congregation probably had it all together, and they were probably just oozing with, you know, crazy love and virtue and perfection and all that kind of stuff. And then I went to church, and um, I kind of got a different picture. Now, I don't want you, I don't want you to get me wrong. That, that first church that I went to was a great church. It really was. The problem was it was just full of people. And um, what I noticed was, I, this is the feeling I got. The first weekend I went, there was kind of this veneer of just kind of coolness about the whole thing. And then after a few weeks, the veneer started to wear off. And maybe that's something that you can relate to. I, and we shouldn't be shocked by that. Because again, we're dealing with imperfect people. But I noticed some things that I didn't expect. It began to feel after a while like it was a bunch of people who were, who were kind of committed to gathering geographically, but not necessarily being united relationally, really began to kind of notice that. They'd be in the same room, and they'd be worshiping the same God, but they weren't necessarily worshiping God together. Uh, it was almost kind of like walking into the cafeteria at lunchtime in high school. You had all the different tables and the groups, and and in, in that church, I noticed right away there were two groups. There were the kind of we call them the lifers and the immigrants. There were the, the lifers, the people who were born into the church. They were born in that church. They belonged to that church. They, they, they grew up in that church. Their parents were founding, you know, people in the church. And then there were immigrants. You know, those of us who kind of, uh, we, we started going a little bit later in life. And we weren't connected to uh, any, of the, any of the leaders, any of the pastors or the deacons. And you kind of knew who you were. You kind of felt always just a little bit not quite in the in crowd. Um, there were the, uh, there was the different, um, I noticed the different ways of dressing. <clears throat> now I, I, I grew up in Southern California and, you know, flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt. I, you didn't really need much more, but for some reason, some people felt compelled to put on more layers of clothes and things you had to button up and these things you put around your neck and, and, uh, vests and jackets and all this stuff. And, and the thing was that, um, and that was okay. That, that was cool. I own a suit, um, and, uh, you know, that's great. Uh, but it was just interesting how there was a little bit of tension going on between uh, those two groups in terms of what they wore. You, you probably know what I'm talking about. There was a traditional and the contemporary worship crowds, and that was something I'd never even thought of and yet got into the church, and there it was. And, and, and traditional meant 
the organ, because we had an organ in the church. And, you know, that was traditional. Contemporary, I mean, this was years ago. Contemporary, like somebody broke out an accordion. That was like, back then, that was, that was wow, we're rocking the house down now, you know. And uh, a little polka, you know, hymnal kind of stuff. And, and it was interesting because there was a lot of tension in the church over worship style. A lot of kind of people who didn't talk to each other because of that. There was Bible versions. I thought there was, <laughs> I didn't know there was more than one kind of Bible when I started going to church. And what I found out was that there was the, the King James Version, and then there was the radical crowd, known as kind of the New American Standard Version. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you'll, you'll know why that's funny. <clears throat> because now there's those rebels, those NIV people. We don't talk to them. But there's a, there's, there was a whole, like, there was a King James, and there was a New American Standard. I was a New American Standard kind of guy. But it's always interesting, because people would, they, they would, they would kind of like, um, look over at your Bible to see what you're reading from. And after a while, you kind of notice there was a, you know, the King James people, they were like, you know, if it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for me. And I don't know why it's not good enough for the church. And there were some issues. There was, there was educational issues in the church. In that church, there were a lot of kids in private Christian school. Um, and then there were kids in public school. And there were some kids who were homeschooled. And it was kind of interesting. People had some pretty... <laughs> I had some pretty strong feelings about the educational choices. And, and, they, and they would like gather. I mean, if you, if you were homeschooling, you didn't invite. I mean, you just, you know, when you had a potluck at your house, you didn't invite those public schoolers, right? You know, you wouldn't do that because those kids are like, they're infected. And then uh, there was a private school, Christian school kids who were, of course, better than anyone else. There were the, then there was the political affiliation stuff. In, in my church, that was pretty huge. Um, there were people who, uh, if you didn't vote the way they voted, they simply wouldn't talk to you. If you didn't belong to the same political party that, that they belonged to, um, there was something seriously, seriously wrong with you. And there was this kind of undercurrent. I mean, nobody talked about it when we got together at church on the weekend and we smiled at each other and shook hands and walked in. But it was underneath the surface and it was there. And it was, it was just kind of like every weekend people would bring in these barriers and set them up. You know, don't get close to me. If you do this or you do this, age was a big one, you know. The old people couldn't figure out what was wrong with the young people. The young people couldn't understand the old people. It was just, instead of a group that was at peace with God and at peace with each other, it felt like there was a lot of unrest. It felt like below the surface there was a lot of division. And I kind of wondered, you know, where does all that come from? And, well, we know where it comes from. It, it comes from sin. Sin creates relational barriers that God never intended. I mean, you look back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They're living together. They're walking with God. They sin. What happens? As soon as they sin, there's a, 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 a relational barrier that's put up between them and God. And then you look what it did to their relationships with each other. Just look at their kids. Look at their sons. Relational barriers. Sin. Anger, frustration, murder. See, God's will is that his children be unified. Just very simple. God's will is that in the church, the, the effects of sin be undone. Jesus put it this way when he was praying for us. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for us that all of them may be, notice, one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, in the early church, despite the fact that it was God's will that the church be one, be unified, be filled with love for one another, there were a lot of divisions and relational barriers, even in the early church. 
Back then, they had some barriers we might not relate to. Like, for instance, one of the really big barriers in the early church that, that Paul was a part of was between slave owners and slaves. I know it seems kind of weird to us, but on a, on a given weekend when a church would gather together, you might have some <clears throat> Christian slave owners and they would come to worship and their slaves would come <laughs> and they would worship. But they didn't sit together. In fact, we know they had a different section altogether for slaves because slave owners wouldn't sit with slaves, wouldn't associate with slaves, wouldn't go to the same potlucks or fellowships after church because they saw themselves as being better than their slaves. We know there were some pretty big relational barriers between men and women in those days. Men who pretty much thought that women were inferior. We know that there was a, there was some, a lot of relational barriers between the rich and the poor in that early church between employers and employees. We know that there were Greeks in the church who thought they were intellectually superior to everyone else and didn't want to relate with other people. We know that the Jews often in the church thought that they were spiritually superior, were favored by God over everyone else in the church. And so all these people come to, you know, gather together to worship. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that, right? You know, you just come in every weekend and check them out. Let's see, where am I supposed to sit? And that's where you go. So into this, here's what Paul says. We've already read this, but Paul begins to speak to the church and he says this. Now, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, that is, uh, that which is done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So Paul speaks to this church. He says, you know, how, how can we create a group of people gathered together for worship who relate to one another the way that God intended? And we're going to talk a lot about this in the book of Ephesians, but Paul's going to begin to take us down this road today. And he's going to mention three things to help us kind of get going down this road. And the first one is this. If we're going to become unified in one body, we need to remember where we came from. We need to remember our one common need, the need that all of us had. Now, in that first church, there was, there was a division in the church that um, is, I, I really can't come up with a modern equivalent. There were, the, there were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. And really, pretty much, you were one or the other. And that's what separated that early church when people gathered together. And I don't know that we necessarily have that, you know, two big groups like that in the church today. But in those days, that was the big division. And when you went to church, you were either a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. And sometimes there weren't very many churches in town, so you'd have to go to the same church. And they found that difficult. Since the time of Abraham, God had chosen the Jews to be his special people. God's goal was that they would be a blessing to the world, that they'd be a light to the world, that they would be a channel of God's revelation and goodness and his love. It's not that God didn't care about us Gentiles. It's just God decided to bless us through the Jews. And that was his plan. Now, unfortunately, the Jewish nation didn't always live up to the goals that God had given them. But one of the ways that the Jews used to think of themselves is they thought of themselves as being near to God. And they would think of everyone else as being kind of far from God. And when they said that, here's what they meant. And Paul kind of breaks it down. They had some things that Gentiles didn't have. One of the things they had was circumcision. I was thinking this week as I was studying, circumcision is a funny thing. It's, well, it's not funny, but it's a strange thing because, um, you know, it's, it's mentioned in the Bible a lot. You don't hear a lot of sermons or Sunday school messages on it. I'm not sure why that is, but um, it, it in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham this, this sign. Um, it's a physical sign that God wants to have a special relationship 
with the Israelites. And so this, this act of circumcision uh, was prescribed for the males of Israel. It was done on the eighth day after birth. So first of all, let's just be clear. This isn't some kind of spiritual decision that a person makes. This is a decision that the parents make for the child. And they decide that they, they want to, this child to know that they've been set aside by God. They want this child to know that God has designs on that person, has, has goals for that person, for that person's body, for that person's soul, that, that they have a Lord and a God. Now, circumcision didn't save anyone. And the Bible's very clear about that. It's not what made someone one with God, but it could bring a person close to God because this person would, would be reminded that God has designs for their life. So this is something the Jews had. It's not something that the Gentiles had. Uh, we're told that the, the Gentiles were separate from Christ. What, what Paul means by that is that the Jews had been given this God-given hope that God would raise up a savior and a deliverer through them, through those people. But the Gentiles, they didn't have that. So the Jews considered this is something, again, that brought them a little closer to God than the Gentiles. We're told that the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Now, Israel was a theocracy. That is, that they had God as their king. And as their king, God gave them special blessings as a nation. Uh, He gave them his his special protection, his love, his purposes, his laws, his guidance. Gentile nations didn't have that. Gentile nations would have to sit down and think, you know, we got to decide why we're existing and come up with a constitution and how we're going to do stuff and why do we exist. The Jews didn't have to worry about that. God said, I'm going to make you a nation and and here's how you're going to do this. Gentiles didn't have it. The Jews did. We're told that the Gentiles were foreigners to the covenants of God's promise. Israel had God's covenants and promises. The, the Gentiles didn't. God promised the Jews to bless them, to protect them, to prosper them, guide them, and use them if they'd faithfully follow him. Now, I was thinking this week about how much of my own life is based on the promises of God. What would your life be like if you had no promises from God? For instance, God's promised me that if I'll confess my sin, he'll cleanse me of that sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty important to me. When I sin and I confess my sin, I really want to know that I'm forgiven. I wonder what it would be like to not have that promise. I, I count on God, for instance, to, to, to deliver me to heaven. For eternal life, I'm, I'm counting on God to live up to his prop, uh, promise to work everything in my life out for the good. I'm, I'm looking to God to fulfill his promise to give me wisdom when I ask for it, to give me peace that goes beyond my circumstances. These are promises that God's people have. People who don't know Christ don't have these promises. The Jews had some promises that the Gentiles didn't. He says, consequently, the Gentiles were without hope. The Jews had hope that God would be their provider and their deliverer to deal with their sin, their problems, their challenges, their future. But the Gentiles didn't have it, so they had to come up with some other things. In those days, for instance, the Gentiles had philosophers that were called Stoics. We still talk about the Stoics today. But the Stoics had an interesting philosophy. They believed that the earth, that the world would exist for 3,000 years, and then it would, it would burn up in fire, and then it would happen all over again. And then, you know, they would reheat, and then they would repeat, and then they would reheat, and then they would repeat, and, you know, it would just go on and on, and there was no purpose. You would just, you would just go through this life again and again and again. There were some who taught that there's no intelligent cause behind creation. That it's just by mere chance that you and I are alive, that we're on this earth, that we have consciousness that we can think. But they taught that there's, no, there, there's nothing behind all this. And, and, and consequently, there's no purpose to life. One day, you and I will die, we'll fade away. Nothing we do, nothing we say is going to amount to anything. It's all meaningless. 
Some people taught that you can't know. We call that agnosticism. That there might be a God, there might not be. You can't know either way. Some people taught that, you know, religion was the way to God. Some things don't change. We pretty much have the same philosophies around today. But here's what Paul says. He says, the bottom line is, some were near to God and some were far from God. The Jews were near because they had the words of God and the promises of God. They had the temple of God. They had the sacrificial system and circumcision. And these things reminded them about God, reminded them that God had purposes, and it made them think a lot about God. It brought them near to God. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul's saying very clearly, these things didn't save you. These things brought you near to God, but they didn't make you one with God. They brought you near. And then there were the Gentiles. The Gentiles were considered far from God. Many of them never, you know, they didn't know the laws of God. They didn't know the words of God. They didn't have the leading of God. In in Ephesus, the epicenter of their city was a temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. They didn't have priests. They had priestesses. And when you worshiped on the weekend, you went and you spent some one-on-one time with a priestess, which today we would call a prostitute. That's how they worshiped. The guys loved it back then. It was a big religion. They had idols. They, they, they lacked the word of God. Paul says, some of you Gentiles, man, you are so far out there. Some of you Jews, you're very close to God. But here's the thing you need to remember. Whether you were near or whether you were far, you weren't there yet. You weren't there yet. Could we spiritualize that for today? I think so. Some of you grew up very near to God. Some of you grew up in Christian homes. You attended church. You got Bible teaching, you know, you heard the gospel. Maybe you had some godly role models in your life that were investing in you and you were near to God. No one can make that decision for you to come to Christ, but you were near. Some of you were not very near. You, you, you didn't attend church till later in life. You hadn't heard the gospel. You hadn't read the Bible. Maybe you had some terrible sinful lifestyle going on that you had to break out of. But here's the thing that we all have in common. Near or far, we all have the same need. And that need is faith in Christ. To come to God through the blood of Christ. And that's Paul's point. Here's what Paul's saying in the early church. If you were a Jew, God bless you. That's great. If you were a Gentile, God, you know, that's great that God saved you. But once you become a Christian, here's the thing. Jews never look down on Gentiles for their former life. Because you all came to Christ exactly the same way. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Pastor Bill explained this to us last week. Notice what he says. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, no matter who you are, it was by grace that you were saved. Not by, not by works. He says you were saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God by works, not by works. So that, notice, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. No one can look down on someone else. He says they're no longer Jewish believers who were near and Gentile believers who were far once we come to Christ. We're all one. We all come to Christ the same way. So we remember that we all come to Christ the same way. And, and the second thing Paul tells us in this passage is that we need to learn to embrace God's one solution, whether you were near or whether you were far. Now, I say that because there are a lot of different man-made solutions for unity in the church. For instance, in the early church, they came up with a plan for unity. We have the Jews are over here and we have the Gentiles over here. They come to church together. The Jews, they're very spiritual, very, you know, uh, righteous people. We have the Gentiles, you know, and they they come to church in flip-flops and, you know, all that kind of stuff. How are we going to bring these people together to become one group that can worship together? So the Jews came up with a plan. We'll just have all the Gentiles first become Jews and then they can become Christians like us. That was the plan. So when a Gentile would come to church, they'd go, oh, well, God bless you. That's great that Christ, you know, brought you in. Now, before you can become a Christian, 
A full-fledged Christian, you need to get some Jewish instruction in the law, the rituals, circumcision, (laughs) um, keeping the law of Moses, and then you can become a legitimate Christian. That's what they did. That was a man-made solution. God has a different strategy for unity in the church. It looks like this. It says, first of all, we need to remember in the church that Jesus is peace. In verse 14, he says, for he himself is our peace. Now, there are a lot of man-made strategies for bringing unity. In the church, for instance, it was like, well, we can get along if you'll just be like me. That's what they did in the early church. If you'll like the worship I like, dress the way I like, sing the songs I like, then we'll all get along just fine. That was their plan. It's that way in the world. You, you look at the world today. What's going to bring peace in our world? People say, well, if we could just get more people educated, we'll have peace in the world. You know, there are people who still, I laugh to say it, but there are a lot of people who honestly believe that peace will come in our world through the political system. <laughs> I laugh even saying it, but there are people who actually believe that. Politics will eventually bring peace in our world. There are people that just say, if we could just remove everything that causes conflict, we'll have peace. We're really experiencing that as a nation, aren't we? Well, some people are offended by the, you know, by the public uh, display of the Ten Commandments. Let's just get rid of it. Let's get rid of, you know, Christianity. Let's get rid of anything that offends anyone, and then we'll all have peace. It's a man-made strategy. Let's uh, get rid of all weapons in the world. You know, that'll bring peace. Let's, uh, if everyone had the same amount of money, if we could just redistribute the wealth, you know, then everyone will have the same amount, and there'll be no need for jealousy, and everyone will just get along, and everything will be fine. What, what Paul's saying here is that peace doesn't come from a program. Peace will never come through a man-made strategy. Peace comes from a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. He's the source of peace. If I want peace in my heart, there's only one place I can get it, and that's from Jesus Christ. If I want peace in my family, it has to start with Christ. If I want peace in my relationships, peace in my neighborhood, peace where I work, if I want peace in my nation... It's going to have to come from Christ. Where does peace in the church come? It can only come through Christ. So as we sit here this morning and we think about how we can be unified as a church, we have to remember there's only one source of peace, and that's Christ himself. And he tells us how this happens. He says that Jesus made peace. In other words, peace isn't the result of human effort. Instead, peace is something that was manufactured. Jesus made it, and he made it on the cross. It says in verse 14, who has made the two one, and it's to destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about the hostility between people. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, that's the Jew and the Gentile, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He says, God got rid of the hostility that exists between people at the cross, In fact, really, he broke down two barriers at the cross. He broke down the barrier between God and people. He did it by abolishing the Jewish law, what you ate and what you wore and, and, you know, your finances and rituals and words. He did it by fulfilling the law so that we don't have to do it anymore. But he didn't just stop there by getting rid of that barrier between God and people. He also, it says, destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between people. Now, when he talked about this dividing wall of hostility, we're, you know, we're thinking like, what is that? But in those days, they would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. He was talking about a specific wall that existed at the temple complex. And this would have been something that people were familiar with. This is a a kind of a rendering of what the temple complex would have looked like back then in Jerusalem. It was an area that had what they would call different 
courtyards. And each courtyard, as it got towards that main building in, uh, at the top there, which was the temple itself, each area that got closer to the temple was raised up a little bit higher as you got closer to the presence of God. These were called courts. And there were different courts. There was, for instance, the court of the Gentiles. This is around the outside of the complex. Anyone could go into this, this plaza area, this court area, and they could fellowship, have Bible studies, pray together, worship together. Anyone could do it. But then you would go beyond a wall and enter what was called the court of women. Now, there was a barrier that divided the court of the Gentiles, which anyone, anyone could go there to the court of women. Now, only Israelites could go into the court of women. Men, Israelite men and Israelite women could go there, but Gentiles could not go there. So you'd have to walk up some steps and you'd have to go into this area beyond this, this gate. And that was where the court of the women were. And there was a lot of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews because Gentiles weren't allowed to go into that area. It was considered kind of a barrier of hostility. And then you could move up just a little bit and you can't see it really well, but there's kind of a, uh, some steps that go up into an area called the court of the Israelites. A little bit misleading. What it should read is the court of the men, all right? Because Israelite women were not allowed to go beyond the court of the women. But men could go a little closer to the temple into the court of the Israelites, and men could go there. Women couldn't go there. There was a little bit of hostility between men and women because of that. Men could go up there. Women could not go up there. And then you could go a little farther and go up another platform and go to the court of the priests. Now, the only people that could go up into the court of the priests were... The priest, yeah, it's rocket science. And an and average Israelite guy couldn't go there, and Gentiles couldn't go there, and women couldn't go there. And sometimes we know that the priest would go up there, and people would be like, wow, they think they're, you know, all that, and you, know, and you couldn't go up there. And then only the high priest could go into the holy place. And uh, in the holy place, the temple had, had this curtain, this veil down the middle. And one, on one side was the place of man, on the other side was the place of God. And the high priest could go into the place of man, but he couldn't go into the place of God because that was only for God. So there's all these dividing areas. But we're told that there was a sign between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And in fact, archaeologists have, have um, recovered several of these signs. And these are, this is what the sign reads, literally. And this is between, it was a barrier put between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And it read this. No foreigner that is Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, that's great. I mean, it's like if I was driving down the freeway and there was a sign in the carpool lane that said anyone in the carpool lane without another person in there has only themselves to blame for, you know, his ensuing death, I'd probably stay out of the carpool lane, you know. Uh, There was a lot of hostility between these groups. But when Jesus came, it says he broke down these barriers. He broke down the barrier between the Gentiles and the women, between the women and the men, between the men and the priests. He broke them down. In fact, it says that his design was to create in himself one new person out of the two. That is out of the, out of the Greek, or Gentiles and out of the Jews. Now, there's two different Greek words for new. One of the words for new is like a new car rolling off an assembly line. There's tens of thousands of other cars like it, but it's, it's a new one. And then there's another word, the word kainos, which is the word we have here for new. And it means entirely new. A new kind, a new quality. It means there's been nothing else like it ever. It's the first of its kind. That's what he's talking about here. God has made the two into one new person. We no longer have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We just have Christians. We're all the same. 
We no longer have male Christians and female Christians. We no longer have young Christians and old Christians. We no longer have, you know, traditional Christians and contemporary Christians. Are you getting this? We don't have that anymore. It makes you wonder, how is it that God got rid of that and we keep bringing it back into the church? He says, you know what? Jesus is peace. Jesus made peace. And Jesus offers peace. In verse 17, he says, He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who are near. In other words, he said, Jew or Gentile, you still needed Christ to get there. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The cross gives everyone equal access to God. It's not your heritage. It's not keeping rules. It's not good works. It's not being near. It's not being far. No matter who you are, the cross gives us all equal access. So Paul says, all right, great. So Jesus has done all of this for the church. What do we do with it? Well, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come, but he just begins by saying this. We need to be those who are dedicated to oneness. We need to be those who are dedicated to protecting what God has done in the body of Christ. What he says is this, is we are individually joined to Jesus at the cross. We become joined to each other. We need to start thinking that way. I'm not just joined to Jesus. I'm also joined to every other believer who's come to Jesus. In fact, Paul, I think Paul is, you know, thinking, I don't know that the Jews and the Gentiles are really going to grab onto this immediately because they might look across the sanctuary and go, there's no way I've been joined to that person. All right. Have you seen that person? Have you talked to that person? So Paul's going to give them just a couple of quick pictures. He goes, think of it this way. It's like we're one kingdom. In verse 19, he says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking to the Gentiles. But you're fellow citizens with God's people, the Jews. You're all one now. That means you're all part of one kingdom. There's only one kingdom. There's only one. And that's God's kingdom. That means we all have the same king now. We all have the same allegiance. We all have the same priorities. Not Jewish believers and Gentile believers anymore. There's only one kingdom, the kingdom of God. There's no longer my kingdom in the church and your little kingdom in the church. There's only God's kingdom in the church. There's no longer a traditional kingdom and a contemporary kingdom in the church. There's only one kingdom. We have to learn how to work that out. There's no more male kingdom and female kingdom, young kingdom and old kingdom, rich kingdom and low, you know, king. There's, there's just one kingdom in the church anymore. Only one. He says, there's only one kingdom. Um, think of it this way. It's like we're one family and we're members of God's household. Believers become one family. We have one father. We're all brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we want it or not. Guess what? It's not up to you. It's just like when you're born into your physical family. It's not like you got to, you know, pick your family. Some of you are probably thinking, no kidding, because I would have chosen differently. Well, guess what? It wasn't up to you. And when it comes to being born into God's family, guess what? It's not up to you. You're born into a family. God says, you don't get to pick. I get to pick. That's the good news. The local church is where we do family together. It's where we learn how to love each other, help each other, support each other. We're one kingdom. We're one family. We're like one dwelling place for God. He describes it this way. It's like you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him the whole building is joined together and raises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. He says it's like you're a building. In other words, God didn't save you to go it alone. When God saved you, it's like he automatically took you and he's building this building. Now, what's the purpose of the building? The building is a place where God will dwell. 
The building is a place where God, here's kind of what he's saying. No one person can be big enough, can contain the glory and and the love and the majesty of God. It takes a building. So God's making a building out of us. No individual can be that. So God takes us and he says, well, as soon as we get saved, he's like, it's not about you. It's about us. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the family. It's about the building. It's built on the apostles and the prophets. That's, that's those early leaders who began to teach and build and write the New Testament. But the cornerstone is Jesus. Now, we don't have cornerstones in buildings today like they had back then. But in ancient structures, when they build large buildings, they'd have these, these big stones called cornerstones. And when they draw up the blueprints, they'd start with the cornerstone. It'd be awfully, awfully big. And then every measurement of the building would be taken from the cornerstone. And all the weight of the building would rest on the cornerstone. And everything in the building would tie together to the cornerstone. That's what Jesus is to us. He's the thing that ties us all together. How am I connected to with you and you connected to the other person in the room? We're all connected to Christ. And that's what connects us together. We are connected with each other to be a place where God can dwell. God wants our church to be like a lighthouse in a dark world, a place where God can be seen, a place where a message can be heard, where love can be experienced, where, where people who normally repel each other, avoid each other, don't get along with each other, a place where those people would be unified. So here's the thing. When there isn't unity in the church, then the church has got to come up with another way to reach the world. That's, that's where a lot of programs come from. I, it's, just, it's just what I think, I guess. When a church isn't a church of love, you're going to have to have an outreach program. Because <laughs> nobody wants to come be a part of a church where people don't love each other. So we'll have to have an outreach program. Let's have a mailing program. You know, we'll, we'll send out leaflets. We'll put on big events. We'll have, uh, you know, different ministries. We'll have a kids ministry and a youth ministry and a women's ministry and a men, men's ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. All those things can be great, but none of those things are a substitute for love and unity in the church. None of them will ever make up for love and unity in a church. Now, if you have love and unity in a church, all those things can just add to that. But there's no substitute. And I'm afraid that what we've done today in the church largely is we've, we've created all these programs to overcome the one thing that we lack. And that is an unbelievable unity and love for one another that goes beyond human reason. That when people come into a church, they look around and go, well, this is like, this is not normal. This is supernatural. And that becomes something that draws them to Christ. But it's not easy. It's not easy, and that's why in the New Testament we're told, you know, we're commanded to love each other. If it were easy, Jesus wouldn't have to command it, but it's not always easy. That's why we're told to forgive each other, because we will sin against each other. That's why we're told to accept each other, to serve each other, to be patient with each other, to encourage each other. That's why we're told to stop judging each other. That's why we're told to be humble with one another. Why? Because it is work for us, imperfect people, to reflect the love of God in this church. But notice what it says in Galatians. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. Now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? One. You're all one in Christ Jesus. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he removed the barriers. What he's saying to us is, please don't bring those things into the church. I already got rid of them. So I want to close by just making a, a, a confession to you. Um, it's not easy for me to say this. <laughs> um, one, a, a couple of months ago, I started getting some email, maybe some of you have experienced this, um, that said, uh, so-and-so, like there's a few of you in the church, I'll get an email that says, so-and-so has made a friend request. And I remember like the first time I got an email that said someone sent you a friend request thinking, you know, I I thought we were friends. (laughs) Did I do something? Is this like an intervention or, you know, what is this whole, you know, my face space thing? And I, so, you know, you clicked on the link and it took you to Facebook and I'm like, oh, this is like, no, this is a pyramid scheme or something. I'm not getting on that thing. I have real relationships. I don't need virtual relationships. So I just ignore Ignore, ignore. And this kind of kept going and kept going and kept going. And, and uh, then we started the new year. And I thought, you know, I kind of want to do some new things this year. And one of the things I want to do is find some ways to, to kind of connect with more people. And so I thought, well, I'll go ahead and drink the Facebook Kool-Aid and, and just try it out and see how it goes. And so I went, I, in fact, it was late uh, Monday night this last week. And I, you know, when I was pretty sure nobody was awake. And then I went and I registered on Facebook <clears throat> And, and actually, I have to say, one of you, one of you immediately sent me a message mocking me for joining base, Facebook. Thank you very much. Um, and, but, but so anyways, I started, I had all these friend requests, right? And when you get a friend request, you can accept it or you can ignore it, right? How many of you are on Facebook? Just come clean right now, okay? All right, that's right. So you can accept it or you can ignore it, right? And it's, some people warn me, don't accept every one that comes along because you don't want to do that. But I just decided if I'm going to join Facebook, I'm accepting everyone. But you can ignore them if you want. Uh, so I started accepting the friend requests. And then, um, and then Facebook starts suggesting people that you might want to make friend requests of, right? Now, see, I started thinking, isn't that, is that how stalking starts, you know, where you like, you know, you, you start sending email messages to people. And it felt kind of weird, but I thought, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So I started, you know, sending out some friend requests. And so it's kind of, you know, fun this week. It kind of jams up your mailbox, but you know, you're getting friend requests and you're clicking yes, and you're sending out friend requests and, and you're getting, it's, it's, it's fun. You get to know a lot of cool things about people. You get to know some things you wish you didn't know about people. Um, uh, there's this whole color thing going on this week that I'm not really appreciating, but I don't want to talk about it. And so anyways, um, you get to know this stuff about people. And then the other day I started receiving this kind of, they call it friend suggestions. So some of you were sending an email to me saying that I might want to make a friend request to somebody else. And I kind of, I, I get that just trying to reach out. And so that was cool. And I started doing that. And I, I was thinking the other day, about how it's really interesting. Some of us go on Facebook and we just start trying to connect with as many people as possible. And it's been fun. Connected with some of you I don't get to talk to a lot. Um, I've reconnected with some kids. I used to be a youth pastor for 20 years ago. And I'm connected. It's fun. I'm finding out where they are and what's going on. It's great. It just made me think how it's kind of weird sometimes that we go to church with people. We walk through the building and we kind of do that whole accept, ignore, accept, ignore. You ever do that? Anybody in this room you're ignoring? Anybody in this room, you know, maybe they did something, they said something, they dress in a certain way, they worship, they lift their hands in the air, they don't lift their hands in the air, they lift two hands, one hand, they stand on one foot, whatever it is that you find offensive. Maybe it's a personality issue. 
Maybe they vote a different way than you. Yeah, I just point that out because I know that there's a few of you who have a serious problem with that. There's just some people in this church you're not going to relate to because they don't vote the way you do. We have some people in our church that just don't want to relate to people who make different educational choices than they do. I have to be harsh, but, you know, shame on us. That Christ would come in and remove barriers and then we would bring them back in. His desire for us is to be one church filled with love. In John 13, Jesus said this, I'm giving you a new commandment. Let's read this together. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Here's my question for you. Is there some barrier that you need to remove today? I think there's really no better application for us to consider than that. Is there somebody in this church? Because this is where we're doing family together. Is there somebody that when you come on the weekend, you just keep pressing the ignore button? (laughs) And you need to stop doing that. Maybe you need to go up to them before you leave today and say, I forgive you, or will you forgive me? Or just, you know, accept (laughs) whatever you need to do. Maybe it's a group of people in the church that you ignore. It's got some problems with them. I don't know who it would be, but my guess is if you've got an issue, the Spirit's putting that on your heart this morning. God says, I want to break down the barriers that divide my people. I want them to be one, Jesus said, as he and the Father and Spirit are one. That's God's will for our church. Amen? Father God, I want to thank you for this, this clear message to us. It's, it's a little bit in our face. It's a little bit challenging, but we know we need it sometimes. It's easy for us sometimes when someone hurts us or we don't get along with somebody to just kind of set them aside, to just ignore them and forget about the fact that we belong to the same family. We're part of the same kingdom. We're supposed to be a building built together in which you can You can be glorified in a place in which you can shine in a dark world. Father God, I pray that as your spirit reveals to us this morning who it is that we need to make things right with, who it is that we need to accept. I pray that you would give us the humility, because sometimes it takes that, and the courage, because sometimes it really requires that, to be able to, to do that, to make things right, to forgive or to ask forgiveness, to embrace, to expand our relational world so that this place, this this group of people right here, Father, us, we can become a place where you can dwell, where where you will be glorified, where you will shine into a community that's, that's so full of need, full of people who are both near and far but still need Jesus. God, we want you to use us, but we know that you've made it clear. We need to be one. We need to be those who love. So, Father, as you reveal to us what that means, give us the faith and the courage to follow you. Father God, make us one. Show us how today we can do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.